and welcome to this month's Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on listener-supported public radio for the Kenai Peninsula, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. As always, thanks to Recess Duty for playing us in with our theme song. First up, here's Beer News. Since last month's show was a live broadcast, I'm a bit behind on some of these beer news notes. Senate Bill 9, the revision of Alaska's alcohol regulations sponsored by Senator Pete Michiki, was signed into law on June 16th. It will become effective on January 1st, 2024. We'll be talking about the implications later in the show with Lee Ellis, president of the Brewers Guild of Alaska and president of Midnight Sun Brewing. Longtime Anchorage homebrewing store Arctic Brewing Supply celebrated its 30th anniversary on May 21st. Midnight Sun Brewing Company celebrated its 27th anniversary on May 5th. Tickets are now on sale for the 2022 Kenai Peninsula Beer Festival, which will be held on Saturday, August 13th at the Soldatna Regional Sports Complex. Live music will be provided by Zero Miles to Empty and the Young Dubliners. General admission is from 6 to 9 p.m. and costs $50. The connoisseur session is from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. and includes unlimited samples during that hour. A ticket to both sessions costs $75. Tickets are available at www.kenaibeerfest.com. The Spencer Brewery, the U.S.'s first and only certified Trappist brewery, is closing down, apparently due to slow sales. They will be selling off their remaining stocks of beer through their regular retail outlets and auctioning off all their brewing equipment. Bleeding Heart Brewery and Palmer took home the People's Choice Award for the 2022 Haynes Beer Festival for their White Girl Seltzer. The second annual Alaska Craft Brew Festival Summer Edition will be held on Saturday, August 27th in Anchorage at the Delaney Park Strip. The fest will feature live music, food trucks, and over 40 breweries. The day session is from 12 to 3 p.m., while the night session is from 6 to 9 p.m. That's it for this month's beer news. Up next, we'll have an interview with Lee Ellis. Hello, this is John Jackson, host and producer of Deeper Cuts Radio. Deeper Cuts features an artist, band, or topic. We play great music not often heard, mixing and mingling genre and era, creating a unique playlist for your listening pleasure. Tune in Fridays at 9 p.m. on KDLL 91.9 FM in beautiful Kenai, Alaska. Enjoy. And we're about to talk with Lee Ellis, the president of the Brewers Guild of Alaska and the president of Midnight Sun Brewing Company in Anchorage. Hey, Lee, how are you today, sir? I am fantastic. It's a beautiful day, Bill. Yeah. First up, let's put your Brewers Guild hat on and talk about SB9 finally getting passed. I personally think it's a step forward, maybe not the be-all and the end-all, but it's definitely a step forward. So why don't you give me your perspective on it? Yeah, so it's, uh, I mean, we're pretty excited. Bill signing June 16th, 
so really actually finally going to be done. Bill actually passed almost 10 years to the day of the beginning of the creation of this uh, update. It's a big deal, probably one of the biggest pieces of legislation to pass through the Alaska legislature since statehood. 127 pages of statute regarding the service, licensing, and permitting of alcohol in the state of Alaska. So that's kind of a big part of it. I think there was a lot of folks that were hopeful that uh, there would be a lot more privileges offered to breweries in this piece of legislation, but I think that's probably the biggest thing for folks to, to recognize is that this was a uh, stakeholder group of over 138 different entities that worked for, oh, geez, we're, I think we're guessing around 20,000 hours over the last 10 years to, to come up with a comprehensive and complete rewrite of all alcohol laws in the state of Alaska. So um, we're pretty excited as a guild because we did achieve um, some victories and, and some new privileges. And to be able to sit down with um, other folks who aren't particularly interested in seeing us achieve new privileges and still to get those things uh, was a pretty big victory. And even though it's not uh, everything we wanted, it's a start. I've looked through the bill and, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there, which is good and necessary, but really doesn't have anything to do with how the average public experiences you know, interacting with a brewery or bar or anything like that. It's all sorts of behind the scenes mechanism stuff, changing yeah. the, the structure of how fines are levied and underage drinking stuff and all this other stuff that's important, yeah. but really isn't what most people are worried about, you know, when they worry about how's this going to affect my ability to go get something. But, you know, from my perspective, one of the big changes in it is this ability that you guys are going to have for like Midnight Sun as an example. I don't know if you guys plan to do this, but I assume you're at least thinking about it to get a restaurant eating place license and in turn surrender your tap room endorsement or whatever it's called so that you could operate your what's now your tap room you could operate the loft as a restaurant i think that's probably one of the most important things for for folks to understand you know there was a lot of consternation over the change in population caps for brewery operations and there was two changes that occurred one breweries and their retail tasting rooms became separate entities which is actually standard under federal law. So a, uh, the federal government, the TTB, considers our tasting room to be a separate entity from our brewery, and now the state does as well. So there will be no longer any population caps on manufacturers altogether. Is that a train um, in the background, Lee? That is a train. Okay. we got trains in, in Anchorage. Uh, anyway, we'll all right. work on that. So anyway, so, you know, that's a really important thing to realize is that, number one, there will be no longer any population caps on manufacturers altogether, which is great. The less great part was the, the 1 to 9,000 until 2030 for population caps on manufacturer retail licenses. Um, there's been a lot of misconceptions on that, but that was uh, driven by public health. That was driven by other entities in the alcohol industry. And basically, the Brewers Guild um, was essentially alone in advocating against that during the stakeholder process. So, 
Um, We were happy to see an amendment pass on the floor of the House that sunsets that 1 to 9,000 in 2030, and it'll revert to 1 to 4,500 for manufacturer retail licenses. That's less of an issue if uh, people are going to be able to operate kind of as they've been operating, like, for example, Kenai River or you guys, but get a restaurant eating place license because now that's going to free up a that's going to free up the tap room licenses, whatever their their proper name, uh, the manufacturing retail license or whatever it's it's yeah. called in the bill. Yeah, so you got, it, you got it right on that one. So a new entity, let's say, if you're a new, if there was somebody in Soldatna who says, "Oh, I want to open a brewery and I want to have a tap room," well. If Kenai River is no longer tying up a taproom license because they've shifted to a restaurant eating place, well, then there's one available. Even with the new higher cap of 9,000, you say, well, there's one available for that person to, that that new entity to use. Am I understanding that correctly? You are actually, you're nailing it, Bill. I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, Well, that's... So, you know, let's let's dig into history for just a moment. You know, breweries lost their privilege in Alaska to operate a retail operation in 1917. Yeah. You know, with the, with the beginning of the uh, Bone Dry Act in Alaska. And I explained to some legislators, you know, our privileges have been restricted for a long time because breweries were not good operators in the old days to the extent that we are the only industry that was banned by a constitutional amendment. It's taken us a long time to rebuild trust with the public and, and show that we're good members of our communities. And our tasting rooms have certainly helped us demonstrate that. So what really happens in this bill is that now we can operate retail licenses without restrictions for the first time in 105 years. So a lot of folks kind of imagine that the tasting room was the only way to do things. But for those who've been around for a long time since that tasting room license was created in 2007, it was really just kind of a uh, kind of a short step for us. Like no one really wanted to give us, you know, the privilege of being able to hold a, a full liquor license or a restaurant license. So they just gave us that tasting room. And um, and to be perfectly honest, a lot of us who've been doing this for a while will tell you that. Limited hours, limited pours, and limited entertainment. It's not the easiest way to run a business in the long term. No, no, it's not. So, but, but as yeah. you as you mentioned, I think back in '07, whenever they they brought in the tasting room license, that was a huge step forward towards making it a, a more viable business model for your small startup microbrewery. I mean, I've done the research. Yeah. You guys at Midnight Sun. You guys were open for like almost a decade before you got into the black. Same thing over yeah. at Silver Gulch. And when all you can do is sell your beer wholesale to, you know, there's not a lot of margin on wholesale. I'm, I'm not telling you something you don't know compared to yeah. if you can retail it directly to the customer. So the, the, the fact that that option was created then I think is one of the reasons why we've had so many breweries be able to take off. So I think it's good that this new me, this new regulation is hopefully still going to keep that available for the, the startup guy, right? In other words, as the, as 
people become more mature and they shift to a restaurant eating place license, then hopefully this tap room availability should, you know, okay, they don't need it anymore. There's room for somebody else to come in at the bottom if they want to, that kind of thing. Yeah, so. absolutely. And that was uh, one other thing that we looked at is that, you know, the, the reality is, is the number at one to 3,000 um, was just kind of a number that was plucked out of a hat, essentially, when it comes to how population caps work. The reality is, is that the, well, I, I told a few folks that the nation with the most breweries per capita is Switzerland. <laughs> And they occur at one to eighty-eight hundred people in that nation. Yeah. And then the state with the most breweries per capita, I believe, is Vermont, and I believe the number is one to sixty-eight hundred. And that's all breweries, not just tasting rooms. Right. So the reality is, is if community even support, um, you know, uh, you know, three breweries or two breweries in a town of three thousand people that are just tasting rooms. Um, and that's questionable, but what they can support is breweries with different retail models, whether it be a restaurant, a full liquor license, or whatever, a hotel. You can have hotel breweries now, like McMenamin's. So there's just a ton of new opportunities that we haven't even really begun to consider in this state, and that's the stuff that we're really excited about. It's not just opening breweries, but really allowing breweries the opportunity to engage in retail operations to be successful, and that's that was what we really found was that breweries that had those retail licenses that couldn't distribute beer still sold something like four to five times as much beer as a tasting room would sell on premise. So, um, it's, you know, it's one thing to say we want to have a lot of breweries, and I think that's great, and I support that. It's another thing to say let's have a healthy brewing industry where businesses can be successful and we can continue to develop, you know, skilled brewers and continue to develop better products. Well, that one to 3,000 number, like you say, it seems like it, somebody plucked it out of air years ago because if you look at the BDL and package store licenses, BDL and package store licenses are supposed to be issued on that same ratio. And mm -hmm. the, the Peninsula is a perfect example. We are incredibly overissued, right? We have way more of both kinds of licenses than we should in theory if we were going to observe the one to three thousand rule i mean sewers should have one right of each yeah. they have six of each right so there's you know we're way way over issued so this whole one to three thousand thing are you guys really serious about this because if you are you should be trying to reduce the number of licenses out here not just yeah, grandfathering everybody and if you're not serious then why is it there That'll be a question that we will, the Brewers Guild and Char have, have you know, struck a, um, a more collaborative relationship in the last couple of years. And that's a big question that we're asking right now is, is this, this whole limited entry system, is it successful in reducing the harms of alcohol? Is it, is it helpful to the state? And those are questions that we're going to be looking at in the future. You know, we had to get this effort done and then we can go look at other things and, you know, I think one of the things I'm excited about is that, you know, municipalities and, and boroughs will be able to petition for more restaurant licenses mm -hmm. because most states don't even restrict those in any way. So I think that's going to offer more opportunity for, for new restaurants and things like that. And I think that's a better opportunity for brewers because there will be more retail outlets for us to sell our beer to. 
you know, selling on premise is great, but you know, like any business, you want to have as many channels for your product as possible. I actually saw there was a bill introduced in the house at this session. I don't think it went anywhere, but 288, which was going to give municipalities more authority, municipalities, home rural cities, first class cities. I can't remember all the details, but basically it was going to make them the arbitrating board rather than the state board, basically was the yeah. kind of idea. It's being pushed from Wasilla, I think. Yeah, that's. There's problems with that, and and I'll explain that real quick. We will look at ways to possibly move away from the limited entry system, but I will tell you that will be it would be like removing the limited entry system in fishing. It would be mm -hmm. a comprehensive and probably very thorough and robust process to figure out a way out of it. But I will say that you know cities in Alaska, it's interesting if you look at city boundaries. A lot of times you think you're in Homer, but you're not. Huh. A lot of times you think you're in Fairbanks, but you're actually not. So one of the things that we were kind of against that idea was because, and, and we can use Wasilla as an example, is Wasilla is a, a hub for a larger area. When you have a high concentration of alcohol retail points, statistically it's proven that you will see higher incidences of you know, criminal activity, emergency service needs, and all those kind of things. The problem gets to be is that whose responsibility is it when people who overconsume or consume in this small town move outside of that town? And that's why we're still probably still advocating for the state to maintain uh, control over that because a community can love to have a ton of businesses. And again, as it was said on the floor of the legislature, Breweries are, you know, bars aren't nail salons. They are, they have a real net effect on the community and things we have to consider. But if someone, you know, drives uh, intoxicated out of that community and then crosses that city boundary, who is the one who's enforcing the law? And the answer is the troopers. So that becomes a state issue. So I think there's attraction to the idea of a city controlling it. However, most cities are very, very small in their boundaries in Alaska, and what happens outside of that boundary becomes the state's problem. Yeah. So those are things that I think need to be considered before we would we would just full full scale let cities decide what they want to do. Well, let's shift gears a little bit. Put your midnight sun hat on, and uh, let's talk about what's happening there. You guys just got done celebrating your 27th last month. And uh, sure did. I had some of your 27 anniversary uh, beer, which was quite good. Had some of your Putin's uh, Paper Tiger. Both interesting with, uh, with the wine barrel finishes on those two. What else you got coming down the pike? Well, we just released a rice lager called Just Across the Water. And um, it's got it's brewed with uh, seaweed and I'm trying to remember the oh the fruit yuzu. And the okay. yuzu fruit is really cool. So it's like yuzu peel. So it's got like this like real citrusy, but like bitterness without like the astringent kind of like drying bitterness of hops. So it's got like a really kind of hop citrus finish, you know, like you'd get from a, a citra or something like that. But uh, a little bit different. It's really cool, actually. So that one turned out pretty exciting. And then next up, we will be releasing, we're doing another Quek IPA. I haven't come up with a name for that guy yet, but uh, that one's going into the tanks next week. And then Merica, 
our annual delicious American light lager that we release usually the week of 4th of July. So, yeah, we got those three beers coming up. We're going to be doing a lot of lighter beers this summer before we roll back into, you know, putting in the, the big barrel-aged beers. We also just came out with uh, Brett Trippen, which is a uh, Belgian trippel conditioned with Britannomyces, and we've been getting a lot of really good feedback on that. Yeah, that's one I want to get a hold of. Sounds right up my alley. Those all sound interesting. Final thing, how was Haynes Fest? I know you were there for that. It was really good to be back. I was sad to see that your your neighbors at Kenai River weren't there, and I'll make sure to uh, give Joe a lot of guff about that. Yeah, he was already but, crying uh, on my shoulder about that. Uh, so. Oh, my back hurts or something mm-hmm. like that. But it was amazing. It was beautiful weather. I think it was like record heat while we were there, too. And, yeah, a lot of great beer. It was good to see everybody again. Good to see our Canadian Canadian neighbors coming down and getting out. And, I take it uh, they had the uh, Brewers dinner? No, no. they oh. we, we were not. They did not put on the Brewers dinner this year. We just kind of had a little get-together just for the Brewers. Hmm. And then I bored everyone with a 45-minute presentation on how Senate Bill 9 will change their mm-hmm. lives. But, yeah, I think we'll be back to full full scale next year and have okay. a beer dinner next year. So now, final, final question. Next week, you're heading to D.C. as the head of the Brewers Guild for the annual Brewers Climb the Hill or whatever it's called. Yep. So what are you guys pushing on the feds? Yeah, that's a great question. The Brewers Association has overall federal priorities. But, of course, when you're meeting with the Alaska delegation, we like to stay focused on Alaska things. So some of the things that are really important. So on SB9, we will actually be able to ship from manufacturers direct to consumers. That's a big change. So I'll be able to mail beer to you. But, however, the U.S. Postal Service does not allow the mailing of beer. So we are working with Senator Sullivan right now to get a bill to make the U.S. Postal Service start shipping beer. So that's kind of a big priority for us. There's some work going on up in Delta Junction to start a malting facility. Good. So I'm going to be pushing our delegation to see about opening up USDA grants or food security grants to help fund a barley malting facility in Delta Junction so that we can really start to get even more locally sourced goods for, for making beer. So those are kind of my two priorities. And then actually we have a third priority. We're working with the University of Alaska right now to develop a collegiate level brewing program. So that's one thing that we're going to be pushing for. There's possibly federal education funds to help University of Alaska get that program going as well. Well, I wish you luck. I tried to do that 10 years ago and got shut down by the University of Alaska. Oh, well, you know. They weren't interested in it. They reached out to me, so I think they're finally interested. So Fairbanks or Anchorage? So I've met with both the University of Alaska Southeast and the University of Alaska Anchorage. So, yeah, we're looking at a technical program that would be possibly a year to 18 months and then a full four-year program as well. Well, good luck. Thank you. I thought we needed one 10 years ago, but apparently I was the only person. You know, it's glacial, Bill. The brewing world is glacial. It took us 10 years to pass legislation. Hey, academia will give you a run for your money on being slow. Either way, they're (laughs) uh, they're both moving at pretty much a snail's pace. 
Well, well, we'll see uh, who moves faster, the okay. legislature or academia. But I'm going to bet yeah. the legislature, actually, which might come as a surprise to some of your listeners. Well, if you so. uh, if you if you get a chance to bend Sullivan's ear, tell him if he really wants to help us out, he could get rid of the Jones Act. Okay. And save us all a lot of money up here on shipping. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Really appreciate it. Safe travels to D.C. and back. Well, I look forward to seeing you at some of the fests this summer. Yeah, absolutely. I will. Uh, I look forward to seeing you, Bill. All righty. Here's Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. A Sit Koch Unity Friendship Gathering will be held Saturday, June 25th from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Kenai Visitors and Cultural Center. It's open to the public with multicultural performances, intertribal drum and dance, a talking circle, arts and crafts, and food trucks. 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Saturday at the Kenai Visitors and Cultural Center. More information at 907-953-9289. Up next is this month's feature presentation. With the return of cruise ships to Alaskan waters, things are getting busy again in Skagway. I thought this might be a good time to talk about the fabled brewing history of this historic Alaskan town. The first Stampeders arrived in Skagway less than two weeks after the SS Portland had docked in Seattle with the news of the gold strike. On July 29, 1897, when the mail steamer Queen landed these first anxious would-be millionaires on the beach, Skagway was barely a collection of tents. By the first half of 1898, when Skagway was teeming with Stampeders, it was the biggest town in Alaska. In these wild early days, Skagway was under the control of the notorious con man and crime boss, Jefferson Randolph Soapy Smith. In her biography of Smith, King Con, Jane G. Haig describes the situation of the town. Quote, Skagway itself was chaos. Only one dock had been completed so far, and most of the gold seekers and their tons of goods were dumped on the beach. If they could not pack them quickly to higher ground, the inexorable high tides would soon swamp them, ruining sacks of sugar and flour, bacon and beans, and perishable supplies beyond redemption. Beyond the beach, the main street, optimistically named Broadway, was a sea of mud. The businesses lining each side were chiefly saloons and crude hotels, still housed in tents. Billy Moore's sawmill could not keep up with the demand for lumber, and now hordes of gold seekers were disembarking every day. Heavy snow falling on the summit of White Pass was threatening to close the trail, making all of the new arrivals Soapy's unwilling but welcome hostages for the winter. Here was an obvious market for alcohol in all its forms, including beer. If an excuse was needed, there were many to choose from, starting with the absence of sewers and the lack of safe drinking water in Skagway. In addition, it was common knowledge that drinking beer helped prevent scurvy, one of the most common medical threats in the North Country. A large amount of beer was sent north by brewers such as Rainier Brewing of Seattle and the American Brewing Company of St. Louis, Missouri, whose ABC beer was well known in Skagway. Since beer is 90% water, and water is the one ingredient for beer that Alaska possesses in abundance, imports, like Rainier, would always be more expensive than locally produced brews. Ads from the time show Rainier selling for 12.5 cents compared to 10 cents for locally produced beer. 
This price differential shows why local breweries were so quick to open in boom towns such as Dye and Skagway. To meet this demand, three breweries opened in Skagway within three years. Robert Smith and William Matlock founded the Skagway Brewing Company in 1897, hiring Herman Barthel to be their brewmaster. Barthel was a highly respected and experienced brewmaster from San Francisco. Hiring such a well-qualified individual signaled the partner's commitment to making a quality product that could compete with the imports from Seattle and elsewhere. Barthel arrived in Skagway in 1898. He was a naturalized U.S. citizen, having immigrated from Germany in 1880 and was accompanied by his wife and two sons. Shortly after his arrival, the Skagway News began to contain ads for beer from the Skagway Brewing Company, featuring a seated male figure in a tuxedo. A rival newspaper, the Daily Alaskan, also contained ads for Skagway Brewing. Theirs featured a wrestling bull and lion. Both ads mentioned the brewery's Red Star beer, possibly inspired by the famous Red Triangle of Bass Ale, one of the world's first registered trademarks, and solicited family trade, which referred to beer being purchased for later consumption at home. Clearly, the Skagway Brewing Company was now a growing concern. Given that it was built from scratch, it's not surprising that in 1899, the Skagway Brewery was considered one of the best equipped and thoroughly modern breweries on the Pacific Coast. Its annual capacity was 30,000 barrels with an approximately $250,000 investment by Smith and Matlock. Writings at the time described the building housing the brewery as being four stories tall with walls that were 14 inches thick and an exterior covered in corrugated iron. The engine and brew room measured 30 feet by 30 feet and contained a 30 horsepower steam engine that powered the brewery's equipment. Hot and cold running water was piped throughout the building, and the entire structure was heated by steam to maintain the proper brewing temperature throughout the long Alaskan winter. The mash tun was sized to accommodate 30 barrel batches, and the fermentation cellar had a capacity of 800 barrels. There was also a large bottling works as well, housed in a separate building. As large and modern as Skagway Brewing Company was, it still faced competition almost from the start. Charles A. Sake arrived in Skagway in December of 1897, accompanied by his wife and two children. Almost immediately, he purchased land for a brewery between 6th and 7th Avenues and placed ads in the local papers announcing his intention to open the City Brewery. He then returned to Seattle to purchase the equipment required for the new venture. Sake was an experienced brewer, having worked for the North Pacific Brewing Company and announced that he intended the city brewery to produce both lager and steam beer. By the middle of 1900, the city brewery was well established and providing stiff competition to the Skagway Brewing Company. An article in the Daily Alaskan from July of that year describes a visit to Sake's brewery in glowing terms. The city brewery covered nearly 10,000 square feet and two stories, and every inch was devoted to making beer. Apparently, Sake's brewing was a very artisanal process, with him being directly involved in almost every step. The paper reported that the brewery had excellent coal storage rooms, which were kept cool using natural ice, and that city brewery placed great emphasis on utilizing a proper lagering process. Sake was quoted as reiterating his commitment to Skagway and to making excellent quality steam and lager beers. 
in what was certainly no coincidence in the same month that their rival was receiving such a glowing review, Smith and Matt Locke of Skagway Brewing held an open house and invited the public to come and sample their purest sparkling lager. This beer was described as, quote, clear, amber in color with the most delightful sharp taste, a perfect beer. Smith was quoted describing the quality of his product and crediting the sophistication of his brewery, stating, quote, our plant is perfect. He also bragged about the purity of the brewing water pumped pure and cold from a depth of 15 feet. As if two excellent breweries going head-to-head -head for the beer trade in Skagway were not enough, for a short period of time there was a third brewery in the mix. The Gambrinus Brewery opened by Franz Gensnader in 1898. It was located on 7th Avenue between Main and State Streets in the same block as the city brewery and also included a bottling plant. Unfortunately, the market in Skagway could not support three large, well-equipped breweries, and the Gambrinus Brewery was the first to falter, going out of business in the fall of 1899. It should be noted that the establishment of each of these breweries, as well as the saloons they sold their product to, was technically illegal under the territorial law governing Alaska at the time. In 1898, Alaska was still considered Indian country, with the production of alcohol being forbidden by the Customs Act of 1868. However, with stampeders flooding into the territory, it was clear to everyone that a change was needed. In 1899, President William McKinley signed a bill into law that legalized saloons and established an annual $1,500 fee, equivalent to over $35,000 modern dollars, for a license to operate, with the funds to be used to support public education. Citizens of Skagway voted to accept this type of licensing scheme as opposed to the alternative, which was to require saloons to submit general petitions from a majority of the white, adult, male, and female persons living within a two-mile radius. It had taken over 30 years, but it was at last no longer against the law to produce, sell, or consume alcohol in Alaska. So what were the beers produced by the Skagway breweries and sold in the town saloons like? We know from their advertisements that the breweries produced both lager and steam beers. Many of the brewers were immigrants from Germany where lagers were the dominant beer style, so it's not surprising that they were extremely familiar with producing these beers. Lager beers, of which Pilsners are the best known example, are produced using a strain of yeast that works best at low temperatures, typically just a few degrees above freezing. However, the yeast works slowly, meaning the beer must be stored, lager is German for to store, for several weeks at these low temperatures. The end result of this process is a clean tasting, refreshing brew with a nice malt flavor and crisp hop bitterness. Given the primitive conditions that existed on the rough and tumble western frontier, it was often difficult to achieve the sustained low temperatures storage needed for a proper lager. During the early days of the California Grohl Rush in the mid-19th century, Brewers in San Francisco were forced to improvise a way to use lager yeast at higher temperatures than normal. The result of their efforts was what came to be known as steam beer, though exactly why it was given that name remains a matter of debate. Steam beer was, and still is, brewed using a lager yeast, but a much higher than normal lager temperatures, resulting in beer that has some of the flavor characteristics of an ale. 
As many of the brewers who came to Alaska did so by way of stints at breweries on the West Coast, it's not surprising that they would have become familiar with this uniquely American style of beer. Since many of the miners now flocking to the new boom towns in Alaska also came from the same region, it is again hardly surprising that there was a strong demand for beers made in the style to which they had been accustomed back home. Besides the staples of lager and steam beers, there is also evidence that other beer styles were brewed in Alaska during this period. Porters and stouts were advertised and seemed to have been quite popular, as well as other British styles, such as imitators of the famous Bass Ale. Even with the end of the stampede in 1898, workers continued to flood into Skagway to work on the construction of the White Pass and Yukon Railroad. Despite the expense of the annual license fee for, from 1899, it appears the number of saloons in Skagway remained at a relatively high levels until the completion of the route on July 29, 1900. Then the bottom fell out of the saloon business in Skagway. As the saloons fell on hard times, so did the breweries that supplied them. During 1900 to 1901, business became very competitive between the breweries and local saloons, thanks to the decreasing single male population of Skagway. Skagway's economy was no longer growing, and it was becoming increasingly clear that it was not going to become a northern metropolis. The beer market was shrinking, and the sale of import beers such as Rainier at local saloons provided strong competition to local breweries. By the end of 1901, there had been a serious shakeup in the brewing business of Skagway. The city brewery ceased operation. Charles Sake remained in Skagway, but changed his profession from brewer to saloonkeeper. Robert Smith and William Matlock sold the Skagway Brewing Company to its brewmaster, Herman Barthel. In 1902, business license for the brewery lists him as the sole owner. Smith and Matlock left Skagway to pursue other business interests around the territory, though they both retained properties in the town. By the fall of 1902, Skagway had only seven saloons still operating. The high license fee and decreasing population were draining resources faster than saloon keepers could bring in customers. Skagway saloon owners instituted a custom that had long been practiced in the rest of the country, but had not been necessary during the gold rush days, the free lunch. Starting in October, as the summer transients left town, all the saloons engaged in a bitter warfare to see who could offer the swankiest free meal while keeping their drink prices high. In other, it was another sign that the saloon business in Skagway was becoming increasingly cutthroat and did not bode well for the future. Herman Barthel did his best to maintain the Skagway Brewing Company as a going concern, but the combination of economics and moralists of the Women's Christian Temperance Union was eventually too much for him. The Skagway Brewing Company closed its doors in 1905. In June 1906, William Matlock, one of the founders of the Skagway Brewing Company, attempted to resurrect brewing in Skagway by providing funding to William Schwarzenberg, another German-born brewer who came to the United States in 1891. In August, Schwarzenberg began advertising his new business, the Eagle Brewery. It's unclear exactly how long the brewery operated. Some sources indicate it was in business until 1910, but no advertisements appear in the local papers after October 1906. It was certainly defunct by 1913, 
when Matlock filed a civil action against Schwarzenberg to recover the money owed to him, since by then Schwarzenberg was residing outside Skagway at the Perseverance Mine in Juneau. So ends the story of brewing in Skagway for the next nine decades. Then the famous name of the Skagway Brewing Company was resurrected in a brew pub located in the Golden North Hotel. It lasted from 1997 until 2002. In 2007, Mike Healy, a South Dakota native and longtime Skagway resident, spotted an opportunity and bought the derelict brewing equipment. He moved the brewery to a brand new building located at 7th and Broadway, not far from where the original Skagway Brewing Company was located in 1898. On July 4, 2007, the Skagway Brewing Company again fired up the brew tanks and opened its doors, opening both locals and the thousands of tourists from the huge cruise ships that visit Skagway daily during the summer. Since then, the brewery has undergone an expansion and a relocation but remains one of the foundational businesses in Skagway. Herman Barthel would be proud. Up next, we'll have an interview with Clark Pels from Sinisure Brewing in Anchorage. This is Drinky on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. Triumvirate Theater is at Soldatna's Wednesday Market all summer long. Triumvirate has a scale model of the new theater facility they're planning in Kenai, as well as information about upcoming shows and other initiatives. The Soldatna Wednesday Market runs from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. through August in Soldatna Creek Park. We've got Clark Pels, the owner of Sinisure Brewing in Anchorage. Clark, how are you doing today, sir? Oh, doing great, Bill. Thanks a lot for having me on. Hey, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. So, what's up at Sinisure? What are you guys up to these days? Well, you know, it's um, been a busy summer, um, keeping up with um, the demand on our regular beers and trying to work in some new ones every now and then. Keeps us pretty busy. What do you guys have on right now? We've got a Maybach from earlier last spring. We have our double and triple the Trappist style beers, which is kind of fun to have those two back. I like having um I'm not a big beer blender, but I like having half a glass of triple and half a glass of double. We've got our um seesaw, we call it. It's um sinister sour apricot wit, which is a kettle soured wit beer brewed with um apricot, two editions of apricot, one pre-fermentation or at the beginning of fermentation and one at the end of fermentation. We did that a couple years ago and um, it worked out real well for us, so it's nice to have it back. We've been doing some cold IPAs, which is kind of a new style out of the Pacific Northwest, a newer style of IPA out of the Pacific Northwest. Not that I'm completely sure that we need a new style of IPA, but when I first heard about it, I kind of it sounded like baloney to me. But uh, reading the um, brewer's blog post about how the beer was created and why he did it um, sort of got me interested in brewing that style. So we have our III cold IPA, which is the third iteration that we've done. Brewed with a lager yeast, um, a little bit at a, at a warmer temperature for a faster fermentation brewed with mostly Pilsner malt and uh, some rice adjunct to sort of um, 
dilute the proteins and provide some clarity to the beer. The beer is brilliant. And then dry hopped during active fermentation and spunded, which or the tank is sealed up right after dry hopping during active fermentation. So the beer carbonates naturally during fermentation and kind of locks in the uh, um, aromatics from the hops. That one sounds very interesting. I'm kind of surprised. I know you were kind of late to join the uh, the IPA sing along. I was rel- I was um, reluctant to. Uh, I felt like we really didn't have a whole lot to add to what was already a crowded field. But but we are with um, working with Cole, our former head brewer, who left us unfortunately in uh, February. We sort of worked through some you know, a series of IPAs that we kind of enjoyed. So it was a lot of fun. Fun trying out new varieties of hops. So anything else you've got to new coming online in the near future if people wanted to keep an eye out for it? We will be releasing bottles, a limited bottling of our um, triple and our double here on Thursday or Friday this week, I believe. So that'll be available. And that's always nice to have those beers in the bottle condition format because you can run the carbonation level up a little higher and it moves the aromatics around and sort of um, provides a different drinking experience than having it on draft. We brewed a bespoke beer for the potato out in McCarthy, which an IPA features cashmere hops and brewed with flaked potato, which was kind of a fun beer to do. Most of it's going to go out to them, but we'll have a keg or two available here within, certainly within the month to put on tap here. Looking forward to doing that too. And then apart from that, the beers are imaginary, but I think we'll be doing a um, Hefeweizen here pretty soon. And I want to do a, um, a dry hopped Pilsner. We'll be doing that within the next week or two, getting it into the tank. So Cool. Kind of an Italian Pilsner, mm-hmm. which is another kind of suspect style, but um, <laughs> but it, it'll be fun to play around with. Any chance we might see you down here at our uh, beer festival in August? We'll see. I feel like pretty busy here at work. Don't have any plans at this time, Bill. Okay. What are your thoughts on the new uh, SB9 that the governor <laughs> finally signed? Are you a, a pro, a con, or agnostic? I guess baby steps are better than great leaps forward or great leaps backward. I think that it was a, a quite a process and a product of a, a long series of compromises and um, uh, you know, consensus building between a lot of different interested parties from uh, law enforcement, and mental health folks and um, the, you know, the various different licensee holders. And this process has been going on for the better part of 10 years, I think. So uh, for us, it's going to be nice to have a little extra time to be open in the evenings. I always thought 8 o'clock was um, pretty doggone early to be um, closing up. And I know in the summertime, a lot of our customers are out doing stuff that I would like to be doing in the evening. And by the time they get back into town and maybe thirsty and ready for a beer, we have to be closed. So the extra opening time in the evenings is going to be great, particularly in the summer. So do you have any kind of near-term expansion plans? you buying any new equipment, any more tankage, anything like that? You know, I picked up a, um, a distressed fermenter, cheap, <laughs> that has passed hands through a bunch of different, several different um, anchorage breweries. It started off, well, it actually started off with Railway Brewing Company in the late 90s, and then Moose's Tooth bought it, and um, I lived with it down there for quite some time. 
and Gabe at Anchorage Brewing Company purchased it, and I bought it from him. It is a distress. It had a leak in the glycol jacket, which I've just identified, and we're in the process of getting repaired, and that's going to increase our fermentation capacity by 25%. So looking forward to that. Cool. But no physical expansions at this Mm. time. So just to remind people, if they're looking to find your beer besides at the brewery, where can they find it? You know, we um, work with Specialty Imports as our distributor, and they distribute the beer throughout the state. We are often available at, around town at places like Hearth and Rusty Goat has on tap. Spinard Roadhouse has been uh, very consistent in keeping uh, our Leyland Lager on tap there. We kind of pop up and here and there all over all over town, particularly, and around the state, too. Best thing to do is just keep your eyes open for it or ask for it. That's right. Ask for it. When they get enough feedback, they'll put it on. That's right. It's uh, always nice to have a little bit of pull to uh, aid in the pushing. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, Clark, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Appreciate it. I hope you have a great summer. All right. Well, great. Very nice chatting with you, Bill. (laughs) Thank you, Clark. You have a great day. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. It's summertime, gardeners, and what better place to talk gardening than growing a greener Kenai? From May through September, Growing a Greener Kenai will broadcast live at 11 a.m. on KDLL 91.9 on the first and third Saturday of the month. You can email us at growingagreenerkenai at kdll.org or give us a call at 907-283-8414 with your questions or to just talk gardening. KDLL, keeping it green on the Kenai. For our final segment today, let's talk about a beer style. In fact, let's talk about alt beers. Alt beer is one of the few ales indigenous to Germany, along with Kolsch and Hefeweizen. It's a crisp, clean-tasting, full-bodied beer of usually 4.7 to 4.9% alcohol by volume, with a copper-brown color, firm, lacy white crown of foam, and a malty to nutty, bittersweet finish. Alt beer evolved over centuries in and around Dusseldorf. Whereas southern Germany is known for its lagers, the Rhineland, like neighboring Belgium, is known primarily for its ales. Alt means old, an allusion to the older style of ale brewing before the emergence of coal-fermented lager beers. The modern alt beer was only acquired its current name in the 1880s, when the Dusseldorf original became threatened by the new beer, the lagers of Bavaria and Bohemia being transported there by the growing network of railroads. Alt beer is a unique beer style because it requires an unorthodox, cool fermentation by a specialized ale yeast that works best in a temperature range between 55 and 65 degrees Fahrenheit. Although most ales are fermented fast and warm at temperatures between 59 and 77 degrees, and most lagers are fermented slow and cold at between 46 and 56 degrees, alt beer's fermentation is somewhere in between. Because of this cool fermentation process, alt beer yeast generates fewer fermentation byproducts, such as esters and fusel-like alcohols. In addition, before being packaged, alt beers are aged in lagering tanks for four to eight weeks at roughly 32 degrees. 
This slow lager-like maturation allows the yeast to reabsorb much of the small amounts of esters and aldehydes it produced during the primary fermentation. A properly produced alt beer is an unusually mellow and clean-tasting ale of exceptional drinkability. Alt beer is traditionally served at about 45 degrees in a simple cylindrical glass. When it comes to food pairing, alt beers go well with smoked sausages, pork, or grilled salmon. If you're pairing it with cheese, try Asiago, Camembert, Cheshire, or an aged Gouda. Oddly enough, we here in Alaska are quite familiar with this very German style of beer. That's because Alaskan Brewing Company's flagship beer, Alaskan Amber, is an alt beer. Because this beer is called Amber, it's often mistaken for an American Amber Ale instead of the alt-style beer that it actually is. How did Jeff and Marcy Larson, the founders of Alaskan Brewing, end up producing a German-style alt beer in Juneau in 1986? Well, here's an excerpt from page 84 of my book, Alaska Beer, Liquid Gold and Land of the Midnight Sun, which describes how Alaskan Amber came to be. While Jeff was busy meeting the inspirational leaders of the craft brewing movement, Marcy was beginning to immerse herself in the historical background of brewing in Alaska, and more specifically, Juneau. Alaska has a long and proud history of brewing, back to its earliest days as American territory. In the 1980s, there were still old-timers around Juneau who had memories of the pre-prohibition breweries and the beers they had produced. As word of the planned brewery spread, residents would contact the couple to offer up boxes of memorabilia from the early days of brewing in Alaska. Marcy sorted through numerous such boxes, containing just about everything conceivable from the old breweries. Trinkets, trash, invoices, and old raw material orders. One thing in particular caught her eye. A mention of size hops in a 1907 newspaper article in which the reporter interviewed the brewer at Douglas City Brewing. In the article, the brewer described the challenges he faced in trying to brew a traditional German alt beer, a warm fermenting ale, in Juno's not-so-warm climate. The brewer also discussed his difficulties in sourcing size hops from Bohemia, now the Czech Republic, but in 1907 a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Due to his supply difficulties, the brewer used only enough hops to balance the beer, with the malt being the dominant flavor element. A local collector by the name of Nick Nichols also had quite a bit of information regarding Douglas City Brewing, including invoices and old raw material orders. Combining the information from the article and the old records, Jeff was able to reconstruct the recipe, and he began making homebrew test batches trying to perfect it. And perfected he did. After first being released to the public in 1986, Alaskan Amber was voted the best beer in the nation in the 1988 Great American Beer Festival Consumer Poll and won a silver medal at the 2012 World Beer Cup, as well as being the foundational beer upon which all the subsequent successes of Alaskan brewing were based. I doubt that there's anyone out there listening to my voice who hasn't tasted an Alaskan Amber, but if you haven't, or if it's been a while, I encourage you to pick one up and enjoy Alaskan's take on the classic German style known as alt beer. Hi, this is Chef Steve Horn inviting you to join me for the reopening of the Blues Cafe Monday nights from 7 to 9 p.m. on KDLL 91.9 FM. 
starting January 17, 2022. New music, old music, my favorites, your favorites, and any music that is good for the body, mind, and soul. Make your reservations to join me on Monday evenings at the Blues Cafe. Thank you. Well, that's it for this month's Drinking on the Last Frontier. For our closing quote this month, I'm closing not with a quote, but with a definition. Sinosilicophobia is defined as the fear of an empty beer glass. I'm thinking of starting a charitable foundation to combat this dread condition. If and when I do, your donations will be welcome. Until next month, everyone enjoy your summer and have a good time. Cheers.